want to invite you to have a seat. And as you do, I want to just introduce myself. If, I, if you don't know who I am, my name is Josh McLean. I'm one of the pastors here at Hagerstown Church. And as always, it is a joy of mine to be able to, to share a little bit of the truths of God's Word this morning. You'll notice some of these little kiddos walking uh, this way and some of their leaders this morning, Uptown Kids, uh, who are dismissed at this moment, so ages 3 to 5. Uh, they're going to be learning something, uh, a story called The Terrible Lie. The terrible lie. We sang earlier this morning um, a, a, a call to parents, and, and the song said this, Parents, lead your children to the shoreline. One of the ways that uh, we are going to help parents lead their children to the shoreline is teaching them about the terrible lie, that terrible lie that Satan first told. If you want to learn more about that, you can, you can get a copy of God's Word. Uh, it, it's there in the, in the book of Genesis. But if, you're, if you like pictures like me, maybe this book would be more helpful for you. I want to introduce this uh, resource to you if you're not familiar with it. It's called The, the Jesus Storybook Bible. It's a fantastic way, parents, to lead your children to the shoreline. Does anybody not have a copy of this book? It's a fantastic book. This is a shaming thing. If you don't have it, does anybody not have a copy? I won't shame you, but if you would like to have this copy, this is my personal copy. It doesn't have my name in it, but I will sign it yeah, as if I wrote it. Um, but uh, if you would like to have this, I'm going to leave this right here. If, uh, if you don't already have one, that's, uh, that's just going to be a gift from me to you. And you can look in there. This third lesson, I think, is the terrible lie. And so if suspense is about to kill you, you can, you can come up here and find out what's going on there. And uh, that's what they're going to be learning about today. So you can either check this book out or you can ask one of these kids, ages 3 to 5. Let's get into our time uh, together. We're going to be reading from the Gospel of Mark. So uh, we've been together, merged as a church uh, for some time now. Uh, we started uh, looking at the, the, the book of Philippians, and then we jumped back into Mark uh, there in the fall. And then as we entered into Christmas time, we, we took some time away from Mark, and we said, hey, let's, let's focus on the coming of Christ. And so we, we had a series there. Um, and then the, the Christmas Day, or the day after Christmas, Pastor Chris jumped back in just for a second into uh, to Mark chapter 13, and then we'll, we'll finish up. We'll jump back in today, again, after our, our value series, and then uh, we'll finish up 13. And this is really exciting. If, uh, if the Lord wills, and I hope that he does, we will actually be reading and studying the Easter account and, the, and the, uh, the Good Friday account actually on those days respectively. And naturally as we just work our way out so that just by providence of God it seems like it's going to fall out there just in that way. And so I'm very excited about that. But today we're finishing out chapter 13 uh, here. So verses 32 to 37 in Mark 13. Let me ask you this. Have you noticed him? Of course all you... People that are Sunday schoolers, you might think I'm talking of Jesus, but I'm not. I'm, I'm speaking of the, the energetic guy on the corner, wildly and frenetically wielding his sign of glory. And he's doing it as if there was no tomorrow. Have you seen him? What, what's he standing there for? Well, he's reminding us. He's giving us the signal that tax season is upon us. Some of you have already scheduled your taxes. Good for you. Good for you, right? <laughs> That's how I meant to say that. Well, it's on the calendar. You're ready to go. You've already gathered your things up. They're all in one neat file, just neatly uh, you know, bound up and placed with a, with a date on it. You're, you're, you're an overachiever or just an achiever, let's say that. And the rest of you, you've begun the process as well, but not the process of taxes. You've begun the process of postponing your taxes. 
Well, you were going to do it this weekend. You were going to make sure that you got everything squared away with Uncle Sam, but things just got away. It was a rough weekend, and so you postponed it. And then you thought over the course of the next five days this week and the weeknights, I could surely find some time after work and before I put, or after I put the kids to bed and we could take care of this. But you have now, that's been two weeks ago and you still haven't done anything with it as of yet. Something's always coming up. Busier than normal maybe. You're getting into bed a little bit later or maybe a little bit earlier than you should have. You're just wiped out. Whatever the case, be warned. April 15th is quickly approaching. And I don't suspect that we are going to get another pass this year, but perhaps we will. Nonetheless, the day is still coming, and so my warning to you is stay awake. Don't lose sight of that day that is coming. You might say, well, what does this have to do with our text this morning? Well, the context is very, very similar. There's a day that's coming that Jesus wants his disciples to be aware of, and he wants us to know there is a tendency for you to fall asleep. There's a tendency for you to postpone preparation for that day, to forget about it, to deprioritize it. And Jesus is saying, do not do that. Stay awake. Pastor Chris, he preached a few weeks ago there at the end of December. He preached the preceding text, and he gave us this Statement, rest assured in the Son of Man's words. The promise of what he has said will take place will, in fact, take place. And while the context is slightly different, those, that same call that he gave us a month ago is, a, is applicable for us. Rest assured in the Son of Man's words. What are the Son of Man's words for us today? Let's read them. Mark chapter 13, verses 32 to 37. Here's what the Word of God says. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard. Keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey, and, he, and when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay Awake, therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you all, I, or what I say to all, stay awake. Let's ask God to bless the reading of his word. Father, we want to be careful To depend on you. Even as we come to your word, Father, we want to be careful to make sure that we are hearing what you would have us to hear. So, Father, we pray that you'd help us to listen. Father, even physically, that you'd help us to stay awake. So that spiritually, Father, we would not be found sleeping. That when you return, we would be wide awake and that we would see you with joy. Father, may we as your church... As a result of looking at this text, may we be found looking unto Jesus. We ask all these things in his name. Amen. The main idea that I have for you this morning that I think just comes right to the top, it's very clear, it's mentioned several times in this passage, is this. As followers of Jesus, we must stay awake. As followers of Jesus, we must stay awake. 
We'll have three questions that I'll answer for you. I'm sure that uh, you have them, and so uh, as I generally will do, I'll anticipate your questions and then I'll answer them, or at least the text will. So the first question that we'll, I'm anticipating you asking is, what are we watching for? What is this day that we must be waiting for and looking for? So question one, what are we watching for? Question two, we'll address right afterwards, when will this day come? When will it happen? And then question three, what, would it, what will it be like on that day, when it happens, in that particular hour, what will it be like? Well, the answers to all three of these questions are given to us in this text. But then at the end of our time, as we kind of round out our time in the text, I'm going to try to offer you what I think would be our five proven strategies for staying awake. Now, I remember when I was in college, often, often having to, to sit through hours upon hours of lectures and hours upon hours of preaching, especially during Bible conference, and we would hear literally 15 to 20 preachers in one five-day period. It was pretty intense. I remember one of the strategies that I had was to, to, to raise both of my feet off of the ground and just hold them there, kind of like doing leg lifts. That was one strategy for staying awake physically, but we're going to look at five proven strategies for staying awake. By the way, if, any of you just, if anybody just kind of had like a light bulb go off and thought, man, that's really helpful, uh, maybe I'll, I'll, I'll notice if it worked for you if you don't fall asleep this morning. But uh, anyway, we're going to look at five proven strategies for staying awake, and then we'll close our time out with prayer. Let's go back to those three questions, beginning with the first one. What are we watching for? What are we watching for? Look at verse 32. Jesus said, but concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. What we do know about this day or that day is limited. A good portion of the preceding chapter is, is speaking uh, likely with a reference to the destruction of Jerusalem. That's what Pastor Chris spent a big part of time unpacking and addressing. The previous context is a day of judgment that's coming at the time of Jesus' arrival, but it arrived in 70 AD. And so Jesus is saying in the previous section, the destruction of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple, it's coming. Judgment is coming. And finally, it did come. In the year 70 AD, Jerusalem was destroyed, ransacked. The temple was bro uh, broken down and levied br uh, brick by brick, stone by stone. That's kind of where we left off last week. But in this week, in verse 32, Jesus is changing gears not to talk about the destruction of the temple, but to talk about the second coming of Jesus, his own return might be a little bit confusing, but we know he's doing this because of the language. He uses the term, the phrase, that day. That day is similar to the phrase that we read often in the Old Testament and that Jesus quotes of himself many times in the New Testament, and that is, I am. If we don't understand the background to that particular phrase, if we don't understand where it was first used in the Old Testament, that Yahweh used it of himself, God used it of himself when he was speaking to Moses, then we wouldn't catch that Jesus in the New Testament is saying, I am God. In a similar way, when Jesus uses the phrase, that day, it is reminding us of a specific time, a specific idea throughout the Old Testament. Speaking of the end times, and the tone, it, it reminds us of Amos 8, 
9 and 13, Micah 4 and 5, Zephaniah 1, 3 and 16, Obadiah uses that phrase, Joel uses that phrase, Zechariah uses that phrase, all of them thinking of the end times, the day when the Lord would return and bring judgment upon the earth collectively and gather to himself his elect. It's the day of the Lord. That's that day. And so Jesus is saying, we've been speaking of the judgment of Jerusalem. And I know you can't fathom a day when Jerusalem would fall and the glories of the temple would be laid low and the world not end. But they are two separate things. And so when I speak of Jerusalem, Jesus says, and the destruction of it, your minds are heavy. Your hearts are heavy. But also know that there's more destruction coming. And he parses these two dates out. This is a rhetorical question, so I won't allow you to embarrass yourself. Don't answer it out loud. But if I were to ask you this, who is the goat? Who is the greatest of all time? Well, depending on different cultures and contexts, different days and, and years and in in, in a century, we might say different names collectively. But for the most part, in a culture, as at any particular time, we would all say, well, the goat is this person, or at least we would know who that title is referring to. And in a similar way, Jesus is speaking of that day. Oh, that day. Yes, that day. And so with the Jews unable to imagine the world continuing to go on with their temple destroyed, Jesus says something worse is coming. Something more important and even glorious is coming for some. It's another day of judgment. And it's another day when the Son will return to gather his children. And so you can see why Jesus is calling to his disciples. And and, and he's calling past his disciples, them included, but not just to them, but to all, it says in verse 37. Stay awake. This is a big day. Something incredible is going to happen and we need to be ready for it. And so Jesus commands his disciples, don't be caught off guard, don't be asleep, stay awake and be looking for that day. You will not want to miss it. And so now we're going to shift gears. We see that the the day of the Lord is the, the coming of the Son. But the question still is burning in our minds. When will this occur? Jesus, when will this happen? What is the hour? Look back at verse 32. Again, we'll keep, we'll keep moving through. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows. No one knows. Not even the angels in heaven nor the, the Son, but only the Father. Think about this idea. No one knows the hour. No one knows the day. It's interesting Jesus, in the previous uh, portions of chapter 13, he gave all kinds of heads up and clues that the destruction of Jerusalem was coming. In fact, he said it's going to happen. And here's some signs. It's going to happen in this generation. It's, it's very, very soon. With a pretty high degree of certainty regarding time, you could say the destruction of Jerusalem was going to be like, right, I mean, even narrower than that generation. Jesus is saying it's happening and it's happening soon. And you'll be able to kind of see it happening. And so when it does get ready to happen, you want to get out of the city. You want to run. Don't don't hang around. In contrast, the the day of the Lord will not be a day that you can see coming. It won't be a day that you'll be able to, to begin running. It will overtake us. It will be here before we know it. 
And it will surprise those who are not ready. And so Jesus is saying, hey, look out. You don't know the day. You don't know the hour. Be ready. Stay awake. It's interesting. It's, it's approach is impossible to discern. And so, so beware uh, and prepare yourself for it. You'll not see it coming. And in this respect, it definitely stands quite different than the destruction of Jerusalem. Do you see that? He's talking about two totally different things. The destruction of Jerusalem, you'll see it coming. The destruction of the world and the return of Christ to gather his saints, it will be unexpected. There will be no warning. It's interesting. He says, no one knows the day or the time. He's speaking of human beings. Not one person knows, but he goes a little higher than that, right? And he says, not even angels. Angels don't even know when, when the return will be. When the Father sends the Son, nobody knows. Angels are God's messengers. Quickly think back on the, all the different times throughout Scripture where, where God would have a message and he would have it for a specific person or a specific group of people. And who would he use? He would use his messengers and he would give them in some way the news that they were to share and they would come and they would bring it. And you would think with that kind of proximity to the throne that they would know. If we imagine the counsel of God the Holy Trinity, speaking of the, the, before the foundation of the earth, this plan of redemption. Maybe the angels were listening with their ears cupped at the door. What, what have they said? When will this happen? And yet they have no idea. Not even the angels. But what's interesting is Jesus himself says, not even the Son knows. And you've been with me, most of you, this entire time. Yeah, I can agree with you. Until you get to this point and it's a little bit concerning. Maybe your stomach gets a little bit nodded and your brain gets a little bit hot as the wheels be, begin to have some friction here. How can the Son of God not know? How can the Father know something that the Son does not? And I have to admit, this passage has caused quite a bit of grief over the centuries. And so there has to be an explanation, and we're going to work out that. We're going to find that explanation this morning. The first thing I want you to remember is this, that when Jesus walked this earth, when he lived here, on this, in, this, in this world, we have to remember that in his humanity, he was limited. In his humanity, he was limited. If you need proof of that, Luke chapter 2, verse 52 says that Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. How in the world could God, from eternity past, eternity future, always existent, how could he be limited in his wisdom. Well, it's because he took on flesh. He really became a man. And to be a man is to not be omniscient. It is to be limited. But remember this, in all of this, that his divine nature, when he took on his humanity, his divine nature was not in one bit diminished. seems, though, that from this simple reading, from Jesus' clear statement here, that the Father had simply not revealed the time of his return to him. And so maybe, again, your head is about to explode. I, I, want, I, I want you to, to really feel okay with that. It should. How in the world could finite creatures such as us truly and exhaustively understand all the infinite truths and treasures that it is in the person of Christ and within the Trinity. How could we do that? 
As an aside, listen, there are no good, perfect illustrations for us to learn and teach our children the Trinity. So don't try. Every single illustration that we would come up with would fall flat. How could anything created ever fully explain to us the truths of the triune God? It's impossible. And in the same way, how can we and our finite brains and how can we with our simple illustrations exhaustively explain the two natures, the divine nature and the human nature, together in one, not mingling together, both of them true with their own aspects? How can that be possible? Well, it's interesting. The church has been wrestling with that for a while. We've received the word of God. We've had it for a long time. But it wasn't until 451 A.D. that the Christians got together and said, hey, listen, this, we've, we've been using all these different pictures and philosophical ideas. We had this egg for a little while, and we found out, you know what, when we used that to teach, it ended up teaching us something false about God. When we used this other three, uh, three parts of, you know, water was uh, uh, ice, and, um, and, it was, and it was gas, and it was um, liquid, that, that was actually teaching something false about God, too. We've just come to the conclusion that everything that we've tried to do to kind of piece this together, together has failed we need to just get together and see what does scripture teach us about Jesus let's write it all down on one paper and and when they did that they did that in a city called Chalcedon they did that in 451 AD and they came up with a couple things that I think would be helpful this is not going to be on the screen for you but if you're taking notes write these five things down about Jesus write these five things down one Jesus has two natures Jesus has two natures now Jesus has always been God But when he incarnated himself, when he came to earth, he took on flesh, he added to himself a second nature. And so Jesus has two natures. That's number one. Number two is that each nature is complete. He's not half God and half man. False. That's heresy, right? Everybody say heresy. It's kind of fun. Heresy. Okay. Each nature is complete. Jesus is fully God. He's 100% God, and he is 100% man. Now, mind's blown. Purple smoke filling the room right now. That's number two. Number three, each nature remains distinct. Each nature remains distinct. His godness does not affect his manness. His manness does not affect his godness or diminish it in any way. They are separate. They don't mingle together. Two natures, one person. And that's number four. Christ is only one person. You might say, oh, so two natures, which means two persons. False, right? False. Christ is only one person. Again, If your brain does not understand this and comprehend the clear teachings of Scripture, welcome to my world. It's safe to be here, right? This is what he has revealed about himself. Christ is only one person. And number five, things that are true of only one nature are nonetheless true of the person of Christ. Things that are true of only one nature are nonetheless true of the person of Christ. And so, for instance, Jesus... In his divinity, his divine nature knows all things. Nothing is hidden from him. But at the same time, he has a human nature, which is not omniscient. This is the nature that increased in wisdom. 
according to Luke chapter 2. This is the, the Jesus that according to Mark 15 that we'll read about in just a few weeks. This is that same nature that didn't know everything. And so Jesus has two natures. Each nature is complete. Each nature remains distinct. Christ is only one person. And things that are true of only one nature are nonetheless true of the person of Christ. What's important for us to remember is that, again, we can't use uh, illustrations or pictures like eggs or, or water or things like that to really understand God. Why? Because they, they fall flat. And so often they'll, these, they'll, they'll, they'll become weak and, and they won't actually line up with what the Word of God has clearly said. And so on faith, we believe what He has revealed about Himself. And here's what's interesting. How many of you guys like to tell to other people your limitations? Honestly, do you really want everybody to know where you're weak? Do you really want everybody to know what, the things that you don't understand or things that you're not able to accomplish? Like maybe you're not good at organizational things or, or maybe you're not good at being creative or finishing tasks. Do you want people to know those sort of things? Well, I, I know that I don't. I'd like to keep those to myself. And I would be embarrassed if everybody were to just begin to talk right now about all of my weaknesses and things I wasn't able to do. But what's interesting here is that Jesus is not bothered to share that he doesn't know the day or the hour. Jesus isn't bothered here. He's not embarrassed. He's not thinking, oh, if I say this, they won't really believe that I'm the Son of God. They won't believe I'm the Christ anymore. And so even him himself, why would he share this? What's well, a no contradiction to the fact that he, in, in fact, is the eternal Son of God? And furthermore, for those of you who, who wonder, did, 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 did the church, did they shape and fashion this? Well, I can assure you that if I were to write a religion, I wouldn't write it and put a passage this difficult in here. It would make it a little simpler to understand with less tension. And yet Jesus, he's not ashamed. He doesn't feel as if his view between, for, him, for his disciples will be any way diminished at all. He demonstrates and, and declares accurately who he is and what he is. And what's interesting too, if you keep looking, he posits himself really in the right spot. So he's above the angels, but he's below the Father. You might say, well, one would think that the angels know. The angels surely know when, when, when Christ will return. They don't. Oh, okay. Oh, so they don't, but I bet the Son does, right? I bet the Son knows, right? right? Nope. He doesn't know either. Oh, Oh, so it's only the Father that knows, right? So you just keep going up the pecking order here. It's only the Father that knows. And by the way, before we move on, this idea of, of Jesus not knowing, the accent really in this verse, it really falls on no one knows. And so the, the point of this passage is not to teach us Christology. It's not really to teach us the, all about Jesus. That's not what Jesus is trying to do. And incidentally, he's not even really in that particular verse trying to teach us about the eschaton, the end of all things, and the revelation of, of everything that's in the mind of God. But really, this, is, this passage or that statement is more about discipleship than Christology and eschatology. It's more about living the Christian life awake and alert. At any rate... The angels don't know. The Son does not know. Who does? Only the Father. When I read that, I thought of Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. Jesus' disciples gathered around Jesus and they say, Lord, will you come now at this time and return the kingdom to Israel? Verse 7 
he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. He goes on to say, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. I love that. Lord, will you now restore at this time the kingdom to Israel? It's not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his authority. We're going to talk about more of this in just a second, but it's interesting how much we struggle when we don't know something, right? Knowledge is is often connected with authority. Information is often found more richly up on the higher ends of the pecking order. And here it's no different. The Father has the authority. The Father has set the time. And we kind of don't like that, do we? We want to know. It's human nature. But he's not revealed that to us. And instead, what he has done is he's instructed us. He's commanded us to stay awake. I can't help but think. One of the reasons the Father in his wisdom and his authority, the reason why he has not allowed us to know the exact day, the exact hour, is that we would maybe set our spiritual alarm clocks 15 minutes before. You ever done something like that? Mom says she's going to be home at 4 o'clock and she gives you a long list of things to do. You make a big plan about how you're going to get it all done. You're going to break it down in 15-minute increments and then you sit down and watch TV for seven hours. And then all of a sudden you hear this strange, ominous noise that's all too familiar to you. And you look out the door window and there she is coming down the lane. And so you scramble to get it all done. Maybe that's why in God's kindness that he didn't say, this is the day, be ready on this time because in this hour I'll be ready. No, the Father has retained by his own wisdom and authority the exact time. Instead of saying, hey, I want to teach you all about the eschaton, he's saying, be ready always. Don't Go to sleep. So we understand that the day is the return of Christ. And we understand that no one knows the timetable. Nobody actually knows the day. What's interesting is Jesus continues on and he gives, as he often does, he gives us a picture, a parable to help us grasp this truth. And so the third question that we're looking at this morning, what will it be like? What will the coming of that day be like? Look at verse 34. Jesus gives us a story. He gives us a parable. He says, it's like a man going on a journey. And when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake, therefore stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. Well, there is a a one-for-one on many levels, this parable with the actual day of the Lord. It is the Lord. Sorry, who is the Lord? Well, the Lord is Jesus Christ himself, the one telling us this story. And what journey is he going on? Well, the journey that he's gone on is to ascend to the Father and to make intercession for us, which is where he is at this precise moment, interceding for his church, interceding for you, saints, He's there now on this long journey. And in his absence, he has given us a charge, just like the master of the house when he leaves. In his absence, he gives them each authority, just as we have authority. 
Jesus says, the Father has given me all authority, and now I'm sending you under my authority with my message. This is the same charge that the disciples had in the first century, the the same charge that we have today. So the Lord is Jesus. The journey is the ascension to the Father. The charge is his authority that he's given to us to go and declare as his messengers, as as, as his ambassadors, the gospel, the good news to the entire world. And what is the final command? To stay awake. As the master of the house leaves, he says, be ready. You don't know when I'll return. Always be ready. The master doesn't want his servants to take a nap. He doesn't want them to play. He doesn't want them to disobey. He wants them to be watchful. He wants them to stay awake. Church, watchfulness is a test of our faithfulness. Watchfulness is a test of our faithfulness. So those who are looking for the master to return, they're busy working for him. The unfaithful, in contrast, they'll they'll plan to wait until he returns. It's a helpful picture. All that's good and well. We're at the middle part of our text this morning, or at least of our sermon. And here's where we come to the fallen human nature and how it brings a problem to this. You see, we are prone as people, not just your pastor or one of them anyway, we, all of us, are prone to become distracted and dissatisfied with the charge and commands that Jesus has given to us. Each of us. Each of us. And we have days where our hearts are warmer towards the Lord, and we have days where they are colder. They wax and wane. Spiritually speaking, there are days and there are weeks and months when our eyes are wide open as if we're sitting on tacks waiting for Christmas. And yet the very next day, perhaps the next season of your life, you need toothpicks to keep your eyes open. We're prone to wander. We're prone to become dissatisfied. We're prone to become distracted. The founder of the Salvation Army, William Booth, he said this, this phrase. It'd be worth writing in, in uh, maybe on the margin outside this text there, close to Mark 13. He said this, Look well to the fire of your souls, for the tendency of fire is to go out. Look well to the fire of your souls, for the tendency of fire is to go out. And so we're all listening to the words of Jesus. The day is coming. No one knows the hour. We must stay awake. And we're all like, yeah, yeah. But listen, I'm really, really sleepy. And so, Pastor Josh, could you give us some proven strategies for staying awake? Well, it's a good thing I've been reading some self-help books. I'm just kidding. Now, I think from Scripture, and really most of them from this text, I want to give you a couple helpful strategies for you to employ in your life to really obey Jesus and, spiritually speaking, stay awake. The first one is this, and it's a big one. Come to grips with your sleepiness. Come to grips with your sleepiness. Verse 33, Jesus says, Jesus, by the way, all the words of God are inspired. This book is completely inspired. But Jesus is saying, he knows that you need to be instructed to keep awake. Why? Because he knows you're going to be prone to sleep. He says, be on guard. Keep awake. 
But he doesn't just say it once in verse 33. In verse 35, what does he say? Stay awake, therefore, stay awake. You don't know when the master's coming. Verse 37, and what I say to you, disciples, you few here in front of me, I say to all. And in that, in that moment, he kind of breaks the fourth wall of time in a sense. Really, that's not the fourth wall of time, but he kind of breaks past this sitting there, that, that group that's listening to Jesus, and he, he breaks into our hearing this morning, and he says, you, Hagerstown Church, you also stay awake. And so what is Jesus saying? He's saying, I know that you will be sleepy. I know that you're prone to wander. I know that you're prone to temptation and dissatisfaction. Some of you are so surprised at your sinfulness this week. Some of you are so dejected that you're still, still prone to fall asleep on Jesus. And you know what? Jesus this week is not one bit surprised that you're sleepy. Jesus is not one bit surprised that you've fallen asleep this week, if you have. Now that's not to say he winks at it, but he is not surprised. And so why are you? Why are you embarrassed Several times this week as I spent time with brothers and sisters and formal and informal counseling and mutual encouragement, this passage came up. I think it's Psalm 108. I don't know why I can't remember, but the psalmist says that he knows our frame. He knows that we are made from dust. He's not surprised by your sleepiness, and why are you? Get over yourself. Say that with me. Get over yourself. He gave us his authority, he sent us in his name, and he told us don't fall asleep because he knew that it would be tough for you not to fall asleep. And so that's one. It happens. Two, stop prognosticating. Some of you are like, what does that word mean? Guessing about the future, setting dates. Spending your time looking at the stars, looking at Scripture to figure out, okay, I know, I think I figured it out today. I'm going to set another date, and I'll be ready on that date, and I'm going to tell everybody. You've all run into folks like that. And maybe you're even prone to that yourself. Stop it. Why? Verse 32, Jesus says, but concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the Son. He says, I don't even know that day. And some of you, in maybe, in your, uh, maybe in your just determination to figure out, no, I'm going to figure it out anyway. Listen, it's not a matter of intelligence. It's not a matter of problem solving. It's a matter of submission. It's a matter of discipleship. Jesus doesn't know the date, not because he didn't apply himself in biblical numerology. It's not that he didn't know the date because he didn't watch the guys and gals on the religious channels. What makes you think that you can figure it out? What, why waste that time? Jesus is saying, hey, that's not the point. The point is not the day. The point is not the hour. The point is stay awake. Stay busy. Don't fall asleep. And that's all. Watchfulness, not calculation. That's what Jesus is calling us to. Perhaps one of the reasons we're... What we want to know is because we want to maybe reprioritize our time. Maybe that's why. Maybe that's part of it. Maybe it's not just that we like to know things. Maybe we, we want to reprioritize our time. Yeah, Jesus, I know that you said 
that you've received all the power from the Father, and then you've given us now, we're under your authority, we're to go in your name and give this gospel to all the, you know, the world. And that's, that's great, and I intend to do that, but there's some other things that I kind of thought, you know, hey, while I'm here, I could kind of work on some of these other things. I've got some bottle caps that I haven't got in my collection yet, and some stamps, and, or maybe it's not that. Maybe it's guns and guitars and cars and whatever else it is, but it's like, hey, these are the things I'd like to spend my time doing, and we reprioritize our time. We reprioritize our money thinking, okay, if I knew the day and the hour, I know it's not, I know it's getting closer, but it's not today. Maybe that's one of the reasons why we like to prognosticate. Look for the future. Look for this day. Maybe that's not your concern at all. Maybe you feel deficient in some way. Remember, Jesus did not, did not even know the day or the hour. It's not a, it's not a spiritual deficiency to not know the day or the hour. Some would like us to believe, maybe on late night TV there on the religious channels, they might want us to think like, hey, because they are more spiritual than, than, than you, that they know the day and the hour. But it's just not true. It's just not true. Remember, this is not a Christological passage necessarily. This really isn't even an eschatological one, talking about the things of the future. It's really a discipleship passage. It's really an obedience passage. Stay awake. So stop paying attention to those dates. It's distracting anyway. Not that I think our church is so set on that or any of us are really prone to that, but I know all of us maybe are tempted in in different ways. The third idea is this. The third proven way to stay awake is to gather with the saints. To gather with the saints. And in a sense, I'm preaching to the choir or to the saints this morning, but let let me do it anyway. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25. The writer says, and let us consider, let us think about how we are to stir one another up, shake one another up to love and good works, the things that God has called us to do. And the answer that he gives, top of the list, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as the habit of some is, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. He says, let us think about, let us really wrestle with, let's, let's have a, a brainstorming session on how we can shake each other up, how we can keep each other awake as it relates to love and good works. And he says, listen, don't neglect to meet together. What I find so beautiful is that this passage connects the gathering of the saints with that day. And he says, don't neglect to meet together Don't neglect assembling one with the other. Some are getting in the habit of doing that. He says, but don't. Do it even more. Encourage one another to to not do that and to continue meeting even more and more as you see the day drawing near. What day is he speaking of? There it is again. There's 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 that phrase, that term. And so if you're to remain awake, church, let me, let me just put it out there plainly. If you are to remain awake, as Jesus has commanded you to do, you will not be able to do that apart from the church. That's a fact. If you are to remain awake, it will be accomplished through the saints that are sitting on your left and right and front and back. And this is why myself and Pastor Chris press you as your shepherds, encourage you, challenge you to gather on the Lord's day and not neglect it. 
That's why we challenge you to join a D group. Why? Because we want you to stay awake. We don't want to try to build a church. We don't have the room. We want the saints that are here to stay awake. So D groups, life life groups, uh, prayer breakfast, and, and a myriad of other organic things are all ways that we not neglect the assembling of ourselves together because through it we can stir each other up to love and good works and obedience to Christ's commands under his authority. So it's not to earn your salvation. It's not so we can say, hey, we had this many people in church on Sunday, and when we gather with other pastors, we have a badge that says how many we had here. That's not what we're going for. But as your shepherds, we watch for your souls, and we know the number one thing that will stir your affections for Christ and wake you from your slumber is the gathering. And so that's number three. We could stop there, but we won't, because I still got some time. Number four, always be repenting. Always be repenting. I love the book of Hebrews, chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. The context that's right before these verses is the the hall of faith. The writer kind of peels back into heaven and says, remember all of these saints that have gone on before and they've done this and they've done that. They've walked by faith. And even now they're looking down on us in a sense now. And he says, hey, chapter 12, verse 1, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely And he says, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. There's a picture here. It's different, but it's parallel. Jesus is saying, stay awake. Wait till the end of the watch. Don't be found asleep on, on your watch, right? Similarly here, we read this story here. It's saying, hey, it's not, a, it's not staying awake. It's running the race and finishing it. And they, they're very similar. And he says, if you want to finish the race, if you want to keep going and make it to the end, you're going to have to lay aside every weight, specifically the sin that clings so closely to you. Imagine running on a marathon, and every time you pass, you can tell I run a lot of marathons. I don't, I've never run a one. But imagine, I've seen them though, right? The Bible says the wicked run, uh, the, only the wicked run when, when no one pursues them, and so that's why. But anyway, but imagine running a marathon, and at every water bottle station, they give you a sack that, that has 400 pounds, or let's say 10 pounds even. And you got to throw that sack over your shoulders or put it in your backpack, and you got to keep running. And every couple miles, you, you see another one, and you got to put that on. That's, that's what the Christian life actually looks like. Every time we come around the corner, we, without even knowing and, and, and without, maybe even without even intending, we put on another weight. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, hey, those weights keep getting tossed on you. They, these sins keep clinging to you, and you've got to cast them off. If you're going to make it to the end, you've got to cast them off. You say, well, I cast all my weights off whenever I first heard the gospel and I saw my sin 
I saw the, the holiness of God. I saw the cross that spanned the gap, and I trusted in the work of Jesus, and my, my, my burdens fell off. That is so true. It's a glorious, glorious truth. And yet every single day, every time you've put one foot in front of the other in this race of the Christian life, you have picked up more and more sins and more and more burdens that cling so closely to you. And it's the task of a Christian. The Christian life is not the Christian life if it's not marked with repentance. And you say, but I've already repented, Pastor Josh. Welcome to the club. Let's keep doing that. Let's keep repenting. I don't know what to repent of. Ask God to show you. Repent of your, your foolishness. You've got more to repent of. And I kind of say that in jest, but at the same time, it's true. The evidence of a true disciple who is awake is that they are repenting. Lay aside every weight. Throw off the sin that so easily clings to you. We won't spend any time trying to identify what those are. Let's let the Holy Spirit do that. But would you be quiet this week and would you ask him, Father, what, what do I need to repent of? I promise you, if you ask that in faith with an open Bible, he will answer. And be faithful as he does to repent and receive grace. Unless for the first time you're hearing this this morning, you might think, well, this is a great place to be. Always pointing out my weaknesses, always pointing out my flaws and shortcomings. Well, that's true. But we are a church of Jesus Christ that is not only, and here do we not only see our own sins that we need to repent of, but we are faithful to be reminded of the, the grace of God that covers all of our sins. And when we turn from our sins and place our faith in Jesus, we indeed are forgiven as we prayed at the beginning of this service. So be repenting, church. Before we move on, let me just ask you this. Just think. This is a free question. Just think right now. When is the last time you truly repented? When's the last time the Spirit of God was audible in your ears, in your heart, and he spoke to you and you said, repent of this, brother? Repent of this, sister. When is the last time? Be a great thing to share with folks you're walking with. D group, life group, book club, whatever. That'd be a great place to share with your spouse, trusted brother or sister. Always be repenting. We're going to continue. We'll round it out right here. This is the fifth proven strategy to stay awake. And I think it's the most important. Remember for whom we wait. Remember for whom we wait. One of the reasons why you'll not find me running a marathon, at least not in this point in my life, is because I don't care about what's at the end. I see no value there. If you were to put some shoes on me and some more streamlined, lighter clothes and gave me a water bottle and a, and a bag of Jolly Ranchers and said, run for how many miles, seriously? I would be really distracted. I'd be really discouraged. Why? Because I don't see value in what's at the end. 
So I often will ask somebody, why do you do this certain thing that you, we all do this, what, what, why do you see value in this? What is the, why, why do you uh, try to do your taxes so early in the year? Why do you, uh, you know, drink so much water? What, why do you do all of these things? And, and when, when we get a reasonable explanation, we say, because this is what happens, this is what I'm looking for, this is what's motivating, this is what my eyes are set on, we can make a decision, oh, I see value in that now. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 15. This is so good. Paul says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce godliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Verse 13, he says, Waiting for our blessed hope. When you think of the return of Jesus, do you think of, do you, does your mind, does your heart actually use that sort of language, blessed hope? If not, you don't see what Paul sees. He goes on to say, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. What was Paul looking towards? What was his eyes set on? What was he running after? He says in 2 Timothy that he's finished his course. He's kept the faith. He's stayed awake, he's saying. And now what do I have before me? Christ. You see, Jesus is not expecting you to white-knuckle it until he returns. Stay awake. Just do it at all costs. Well, Sure. But not just so that we can say that we stayed awake, but the, the number one or number five reason that we can, or a strategy that we can employ to stay awake is to keep our eyes on Jesus Christ. And when we do that, as we looked a few weeks ago, the things of this earth will grow strangely, strangely dim. And he will become more and more precious. Asking your children to stay awake the night that some court cases is going to be announced on the West Coast, not impossible. Asking them to stay up late into the, wee, uh, to the uh, late hours of the, of the day and wee hours of the morning to help you finish your taxes. They're not going to do that. Can't do it. Dad, I'm too weak. I can't, I can't help. And yet when you say, hey, would you like to stay up just a few more hours? And we'll open some presents on Christmas Day. Oh, all of a sudden, their, their focus is, is their laser, right? Why? Because they see the value. And they're waiting for that blessed hope of a package. How much more should we Christians be able to stay awake when we realize that what we have in front of us is our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ? And so as I encouraged you a while ago, I pray that you'll be not frustrated with me as I encourage you again. Church, talk of Jesus. Talk of him often. Think of Jesus often. Meditate on Jesus. Read about Jesus. Sing about Jesus. That's what we're going to do as a church. Why? Because we want to stay awake. And so we are going to keep our eyes fixed on the blessed hope. We're going to be looking to the sky for the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And to that end, would you pray with me this morning? Father, we thank you for your patience. 
Though it's difficult for us to come to grips with our sleepiness, our own weakness, it's not for you. And this is why you've sent Christ. This is why you've given us the church. This is why we run the race together. Father, thank you. You're kind. Father, your authority, your wisdom has set this date, and we submit to that now. We pray that we would stop asking questions and that we would be pleased to know that you are coming again, that your word is sure, and let us be faithful until that day. Father, we pray that we would be faithful to gather with the saints and be encouraged by it. Father, we would see this as an opportunity when we gather together to sing loudly and passionately in each other's ears. Father, we would be reminded to encourage and stir one another's affections for Jesus and our, our, our desire to love one another and to encourage one another. Father, we pray that that would be true. Father, we pray that when we're not faithful, we pray that when we sin that we would be faithful to repent. Father, maybe we'd be a church that doesn't cast stones at one another, but encourages and, and even lifts and carries one another to the altar to receive mercy and repent. And Father, may we be a church that always and ever looks to the face of Christ. It's for him that we wait, and it's in his name that we pray. Father, cause us to stay awake. Jesus, we ask these things in your name. Amen.